This is the Touch of Flavor Podcast, episode 12. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor Podcast, dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. What's going on, everybody? We are back for another Q&A episode where we answer the questions that you guys have sent in. Today, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. We're going to talk about how to make your vanilla wedding a little kinky, what to do when your wife can't stand your girlfriend, how do you find a legit, with air quotes, femdom, and a whole bunch of other things. We also got to spend a little bit of time catching you up on what's going on with us personally. We just proposed to our girlfriend and we got engaged, so we're going to tell you that story. And Siri makes an unexpected appearance about halfway through this episode, so stick around for that. If you'd like us to answer your questions on air, we do these Q&A episodes whenever we get enough questions, which right now is pretty much once every other week. Go ahead and send your questions in. Two ways you can do that. You can go to atouchofflavor.com forward slash ask and fill out the form. That's atouchofflavor.com forward slash ask. Or you can call into our voicemail line at 833-ASK-TOF1. That's 833-ASK-TOF1. Let's hop in. So, a lot has happened since the last time we recorded. Yeah, a lot. There's been good things and bad things. We won't get into the bad things. Our house is annoying. Bad things is our house is a disaster and the whole front wall has to be ripped out. <laughs> That's the the very short, very non-stressful, least ridiculous way to put the bad things that have been going on. But there's been some good things as well. Yeah. So, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, our wedding anniversary. We've been together longer than that, but our uh, 10-year wedding anniversary, I'm still sort of in shock. I got to tell you, I really cannot believe that 10 years have passed since our wedding. It does not feel that long. Like, I'm happy that I've spent 10 years with you, but just wrapping my brain around the fact that we've been married for a decade is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, I had this anniversary weekend to kind of take it in. So I think, I think I'm a little more accepting of it. It's hard to believe that so much time has passed, though, and that's essentially all my adult life. Yeah, I got you when you were you were uh, nineteen. Nineteen, yeah, I dug my claws in early. So yeah, so that was fun. So we went away. Uh, so generally, you know, so we we have our primary group, and most of our vacations and things like that, and especially things that are going to like take decent amounts of money and time, like kind of vacations, we tend to do in a group. But something that we got into a few years ago is we always still take our anniversary as diet time. Yeah, just a few days we go away and we spend time together. And it's a great reconnective experience. And basically, while we're away, we tend, at least you and I, uh, we pretty much fuck most of the time and seeing that's kind of what we do. I'm not saying that's what you need to do with your partner, but I will say... I think that even if you're in a group situation, having some sort of dyad time is is a great way to reconnect with your partner. For us, our bonding usually is seening in sex. For you, it might be something else. But having having some time with your dyad is really important. It's different with the other other members of our dyad or of, of our group when we have dyad time with them. But you know, I think I think you know, dyad time is always important. First of all, and we were talking earlier about how you know a lot of the the diet time in our group tends to come just from schedule mismatches, which Cassie thinks is good. I actually think is a sign of of issues in our lives that that that's where most of our diet time comes from is because we have crazy schedules. But with that being said, we do get diet time built into the you know the group on a regular basis, and I think that's important. The issues being the crappy schedules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But with that being said, um, you know I still think it's important. I still think it's important to take time to 
celebrate each relationship individually. And anniversaries are a good way to do that. And we didn't always, now we didn't always go away on our own for anniversaries either. Yeah, there was uh, times that we would just like possibly go to dinner or something like that and not really take a, a very large amount of time. Or times that we would go and take our partners. I mean, we did that yeah. before too, a couple times. But it's been it's been really good for us. And I highly recommend it if you are in a group with more than two people uh, to take time to celebrate your individual anniversary. I think it's a good idea to do, even if you're in a very tight-knit group that usually does most things together. But yeah, basically what, we went away for two days and we went one day and basically spent it at the hotel and then the second day we went back to Harper's Ferry, which is where we got engaged many moons ago. <laughs> a decade a startingly, ago. Over a de- oh, we got over, engaged, yeah. Over a decade a ago. Startlingly, a startlingly large number of moons now. <laughs> so, yeah, so we did that. Uh, so that is one one big thing that's happened. But the other big thing that's happened, uh, and it was actually, I think, before the last episode went out, because we pre-record a lot of these episodes, but we got engaged. Yes, to our other partner. Yes. And that was really, really, really exciting for me because I got to take on a different role with the proposal. Like when you and I got proposed or became fiancés. When I proposed to when you. When you proposed to me, however you want to word that. Um, you got to like pick the ring and the place and how we did it. And it was beautiful you based it off of like a movie that we really liked together, which was uh, Natural Born Killers. We went out to uh, Harper's Ferry to where the bridge was. And where the rivers meet, the two rivers meet, the Patapsco and the, what's, what is Shenandoah. it? Shenandoah. They meet together and then they go out to the ocean. And uh, what we did was we uh, cut our hands and put the blood in the water and it went out to the ocean and all around the world together. And it was super, super romantic and awesome. Uh but you planned all that. Like I didn't get to have that planning aspect of it. So for this, this, this. Not only that, but you're wondering where the money went for the ring. <laughs> so a little sidetrack story. Uh, I handle a lot of like our finances as far as looking at where money is going and stuff like that. And before Rigel proposed to me, I was noticing that like $100 here was going missing, a couple hundred dollars there was going missing, and I got super, super angry at him uh, to the point of causing a huge fight, which then he ended up showing me that he bought me a diamond. Uh, and he but was you still like, didn't know I was going to propose to you. No, I, did, I didn't know that you were... Pro- well, I, I knew that you eventually. had bought Eventually, but I didn't know when and how. So being able to be on the other end of that was super exciting for me. Like helping to pick out the ring and sort of figuring out how we were going to do the proposal to our girlfriend, uh, who is now our fiance. Yes. Who was actually, so it's actually the first, first partner that we proposed. We had a couple other partners before we've gotten to that point and we've talked about it and it's just never been the right fit. Um, but yeah, so now we have to plan a wedding, uh, but not wedding. Sorry. We can't call it a wedding. Commitment ceremony. Or something along those lines. But anyway, so we have to plan that. But the proposal itself was pretty cool. First off, we had to buy a ring, and you would not let me buy cool rings. Um, So we got like a princessy ring, because the ones that I found that were like sci-fi and purple, you were not going for. No, because that's not our girlfriend. And as much as those rings were very you, Rigel, they were not our girlfriend. Our girlfriend is much more of the 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 princessy cutesy type. So, um, so we got a princess ring that had two heart diamonds. And then we actually proposed at an escape room. So we, we first went to an escape room, uh, back when we were on vacation in Florida recently. And we all went, we took our, our child and we went and did this escape room at a place called dare to escape in Florida, which was super awesome. And we're kind of like, Oh, we have a hobby now. Like we need to do this more. Although it's, it's somewhat of a, a difficult hobby, I guess, because after you burn through all the ones in your area, you kind of have to travel around to go to other ones because, you know, it's, it's the replay value is pretty much nil, right? But so it was fun. So we decided, I think actually we were on vacation because we, we already knew we were going to propose yeah. at the time. And our son had been kind of like a proposal pushing us too. Yeah, the kid, the kid was like, do it. He's sending me text messages on the way down to Florida. Like, so are you proposing in Florida? It's like, no. He wanted us to propose at a cat cafe in Florida. But anyways, 
So we decided in Florida that we were going to do it at an escape room. Uh, so we got back and Cassie called around and talked to the different places and tried to find a place that was not going to be ridiculous about it. Cause like we wanted the ring to be the final clue. And like, you talked to like one place I was like, Oh yeah, like we can do it. But you know, if you miss your time, uh, we're, we're going to shut you down. So you'll just have to just give it to her afterwards. You guys won't we'll complete the, we're kind of like, why, why would we, why would we pay you to rent out this room then if, if that, that completely yeah, some escape rooms are really serious about if you don't make it in time, you don't make it in time. And they weren't willing to be flexible on like helping us make it to get to the ring, which is kind of the purpose of the whole exercise, ordeal. <laughs> right? In this case, it was the purpose of the whole, whole exercise. So you uh, found a place. Yeah, I found a place that was open-minded and awesome because there was actually two places that weren't willing to do it simply based on it being a three-person proposal. So screw you, bigot. Somebody else got our business. And then you talked to a place called Laurel House of Horrors. Horrors, yes. Right. And they were super cool. Very awesome. Shout out to them. They're in Maryland. They're in Laurel, obviously. And we went there and we had it all coordinated with them ahead of time. And what we did was the last clue was actually going to be the ring. So they had us get... So if you're not familiar with an escape room, basically it's a room or a series of rooms, you know, around, usually around a theme or like a story. And you have to solve a series of puzzles and, and find clues and things like that to get out. And basically all the puzzles or clues lead to some kind of code or combination or things like that to unlock, you know, various things you can unlock and get to the next stage or the next room. So I coordinated with them. They had us get a uh, key lock box to put the ring in. Like you'd get for like a, a realtor, like for a house. Yeah. So we got that. So that way they didn't have the code we did. And they came up with like a little way to get that code in there to her. Um, which was really cool because it was this whole organization with the place. And the people, because we actually had some family and friends come out. It was like a small group. It was like 10 of us, but everybody was in on it except our girlfriend. Yeah. The the kid was in on it, our friends, our family. And after she, you know, we proposed to her, she was like, wait, everybody knew everybody was in on this that I wasn't like, I was, I the only person who didn't know. And we were like, yes, of course. Yes. And well, the thing is like, so the, but the really funny thing was that when she finally got to the ings, it was the last clue and she found the ring. Like it took her a minute to realize that it was a proposal, not a clue. And it wasn't <laughs> a clue. So like, she was really kind of hilariously shell shocked for like, 60 seconds trying to figure out how this ring was going to open the door (laughs) and like reading the tag, thinking that the tag on the ring was like the clue to like get out of the room. So it was, it was, it was hilarious. So, and our friends were all awesome and totally led her along fantastically. And yeah, it was great. Yeah. So we'll, we'll throw a couple in the show, a couple pictures in the show notes at a touch of flavor.com forward slash zero one, two, a touch flavor.com forward slash zero 12. And yeah, and you can go there and take a look and see the shocked reaction on her face when she's trying to figure out what this this ring is. It was quite funny and fun and awesome. And now we got to make wedding plans. Commitment ceremony plans. So talking about all this poly commitment ceremony kinky kind of stuff, I think ties very well into our first question. Our first question is from Jennifer. Jennifer is from Maryland, and she's 28 years old. Her question is, I am marrying my daddy next month. We are writing our own vows. I want to work something about our DS commitment in subtly, without tipping off our very vanilla families. Any thoughts? Also, would like some ideas on how to do DS sorts of things in the ceremony without it being obvious. Start with the vows? Yeah, I think vows is a good place to start. Uh, First off, it's actually fairly easy to sort of sneak in things into your vows that are DSE, especially from the standpoint of a female submissive male dominant. A lot of traditional vows have a lot of things in there already that is in regards to the female serving or obeying. So throwing those words in, I think are going to be very easy. So throwing things in like, I will serve you or I will obey you. Uh, You belong to me. I belong to you. I am yours, you are mine. 
yeah, all of those things are very common, but also can have a lot of meaning in your in your ceremony. I mean, you could probably work serve and obey into the vows specifically as, and I mean, hey, like it would, very vanilla usually kind of somewhat equates to religious and it would probably tie right into what people would expect from, from a ceremony. You know what I mean? Uh, so there's that. Um, I'm, I can't help but think, so we're kind of on a Game of Thrones binge right now, and I can't help but think of, of when uh, Sansa and Tyrion are getting married and she, you know, mainly due to the height difference, but has to kneel so that he can, he can put his cloak over her shoulders. But you may, you know, be able to work something in where, uh, where you kneel, you know, during the vows or during some part of the ceremony itself. Yeah, like if if he's taking the 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 veil off of you or something, you could kneel during that or something. Yeah, taking the veil off or um, like putting anything around your neck or anything. I guess you don't put something around somebody's neck at a typical typical wedding ceremony. But yeah, I think I think there's a lot of things you could work out kneeling for um, in part of it. I mean, I knelt during our our ceremony actually. Yeah, we did a, a sword and chalice ceremony. So you had to bow down and present me a sword. So there's there's that. And the thing is, is that you don't necessarily have to have your wedding be a traditional one. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to talk about for a minute. So there there were very few things that pissed me off as much as traditional weddings. And funerals. Funerals piss me off more than <laughs> traditional weddings. But by traditional, I, I tend to mean religious. And the thing that I, I despise about that is that those ceremonies always almost inevitably go into being more about religion than they do about the people who are getting married or the people who died. But, you know, in the case of a wedding, the people who are getting married and, you know, the ceremony really, it, 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 it isn't anything specific to or special for the couple. It's all about the religion, right? And I mean, I, I actually recently saw somebody try and convert people, like have like a conversion ceremony during a funeral. Like, so I, I really despise traditional ceremonies in that way. And I think that it's, it's important for people. Um, you know, it can still be vanilla, right? It doesn't have to be openly kinky or anything like that, but that is, it represents your relationship. It is, is meaningful and, and specific to you guys as the couple. And when you're doing that, that gives you a lot of leeway to build things into the ceremony that uh, you can, that can represent power exchange or represent things like that. Yeah. And I think uh, something that'll be helpful is possibly getting an officiant instead of going through like a traditional uh, preacher or priest or something like that, actually getting an officiant, uh, if you can, someone in the BDSM community, and if not, uh, someone who is at least uh, kink-friendly and open-minded. Yeah, I don't know if your area is anything like ours, but it amazes me to no end how many people in the BDSM community are uh, licensed to, to officiate weddings. It's just incredible to me. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's local to our area, but it is a significantly higher percentage than the average population. But even if you you can't get somebody who is kinky, getting an officiant who is just open-minded, our, for example, our our the lady who did our ceremony, she wasn't kinky, uh, but she was very open-minded. And somebody like that can really help with designing a ceremony, right? Because they've probably been involved, especially if it's somebody who, who doesn't just do traditional weddings, they've probably been involved in a lot of uh, a lot of different types of ceremonies to where they can bring in different ideas to maybe help accomplish some of what you want to accomplish in, in your ceremony. So with getting an officiant, um, as, as Rigel was saying, I think that's very, very helpful. It can really help you shape what you want to do with it. But some other ideas that you can throw into your ceremony are things like uh, finding gestures and, and ways of body language to express your uh, power dynamic, things like, uh, you're talking about, you know, kneeling or something like that, but you could also do things like bowing to your husband, um, or him cupping your hands with his little small gestures that vanilla people aren't necessarily going to pick up on. So, uh, just think about different things that 
you guys can do possibly having him put his hands on your shoulders, some, some sort of thing that means something to you that isn't necessarily going to be picked up by the rest of the, the vanilla crowd there. You can, um, you can wear something. I mean, you can, if you have a collar, um, depending on what your collar looks like, right? Like if you've got something like an attorney collar or like, you know, something metal that looks decorative, like a piece of jewelry, you can wear that during your ceremony. Uh, maybe you could even grab it or something during your ceremony if it's something that's around, you know, your wrist or something like that. Uh, if you don't have a collar that's appropriate, you could maybe wear a piece of chain or something under your clothing for the ceremony. Yeah, and what others can't see doesn't exist. So there's lots of things that you can do underneath of both, you know, his attire or your attire um, to symbolize those sort of things. And going back to what you were saying, as far as a collar, even if it's around your neck, if it's something that is not necessarily a blatantly obvious collar that you're um, comfortable wearing, it would be very easy for him to do something like grab your neck when he's kissing you, when you're kissing the the, the, the bride or whatever, like grabbing your neck um, in a subtle way that everyone's like, oh, look, they're smooching. But really what he's doing is he's letting you know that you're his while he's kissing you. Um, there's a lot of little things like that that you can add in there. One of the other nice things about designing your own ceremonies, you can kind of shape your vows, maybe in a way that are, are more relevant to you. For example, you know, we've been poly for years. When we did our wedding vows, there was nothing in there about forsaking all others or, or anything along those lines that you find in typical wedding vows, because we knew that was bullshit, right? It was going to be lies. It was going to be lies. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can cater stuff to that. Um, music, like songs and things like that. Yeah. And your wedding is not just the, the like ceremonial vow part too. There's also like your reception and your first dance. So picking a song, as you were saying, that has some sort of meaning to it or incorporating things into your dance that you do for your first dance or possibly still taking some of those protocols that you might have in your relationship for the, fir for the first dinner. Like um, he could still take the first bite of the food incorporating all those things into your wedding ceremony can help make that wedding ceremony still feel very unique to your power exchange. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I feel that we would be neglectful not to mention is maybe more, more common wisdom would be to do two ceremonies, right? To have uh, a ceremony with your vanilla family and friends and things like that, uh, where maybe you do or don't incorporate some of this stuff into it. And then to have a ceremony for your kinky friends or a collaring ceremony or something along those lines, which, uh, you know, symbolizes more of the, the power dynamic and where you can be as open as you want about everything that you're doing. I mean, I've seen some crazy crap in kink weddings, you know, the versions where they've had the kinky people there. I mean, everything from people crawling down the aisle to... Getting flogged as they're walking down the aisle, those sort of things. Yeah. So, you know, that that's always an option as well, is to do two ceremonies. And you can still work some of the stuff into your main ceremony if you want to. Um, you know, talking about designing your own ceremony. So we actually wrote ours from bits and pieces of, of different things. Like eight different kinds of ceremonies. Yeah. Um, so something we can do is I actually still have our ceremony and we can post that in the show notes at touchaflavor.com forward slash zero one two. You know, preferably don't copy our ceremony exactly, but maybe you can get some ideas on uh, things that you might want to work into your ceremony or even just different types of ideas that might get your mind moving in a different direction from traditional weddings. Yeah. Don't steal it from us, but be sure to check it out and hopefully that'll help you come up with some ideas. All right. So a touch of flavor.com forward slash zero one two in the show notes. All right. Our next question is from Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't. Okay. Sorry. Are you serious? Scotty. Uh, <laughs> it's from Scotty. Uh, I can't help it. If every time I hear that name now, that's what goes in my head. Um, so our next question is from Scotty. Uh, he says, I love being naked and enjoy it more when I'm in public, like hikes while driving, walking in the middle of nowhere. Also, I love to eat pussy in public. How do I find girls that are in the, to the same thing as me 
without being a weirdo. I love eating pussy in public. I, I love getting my pussy eaten in public. And um, sex. And, and eating pussy in public. And, and I like to eat pussy in public. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand Scotty very much. Well, so Scotty, you're, you're essentially an exhibitionist. I mean, is the long and short of it. I mean, you get off on either people watching you or being in situations where you could potentially get caught. Yeah. Uh, which I feel like you would identify with rather muchly. Yeah, I, I'm, I feel for Scotty a lot. So for me, I, I really do enjoy all aspects of being an expeditionist, like that uh, having people watch and also that feeling of like, I might get caught. So here's the thing though, I'm not unique and Scotty is not particularly unique in his fetish for being an expeditionist. That's actually a very, very common fetish I would actually say that to a certain extent, everybody that you're going to run into in the public scene is somewhat of an exhibitionist. And I talk about this theory a lot and so much that I'm going to have to track this down. But, you know, I read something a while back, this theory on how what we call the scene, right, people who actually come out into public and do stuff is a cross-section of people who are kinky, usually people who are somewhat open in their relationships, and people who are exhibitionists to some level. And those are the people that we get out and that we we call the public scene, right? So most people that you're going to run into in the public scene going out to anything are going to be exhibitionists, at least to some level. Even if it's just like me, where it's a level of, I don't personally really get much out of it, but I get something out of if my partner is getting something out of it, right? So like for Cassie, it's a huge turn on. So even though it's not particularly a turn on for me to do stuff in public, uh, you know, it's a turn on to me that she's turned on or that whatever partner we're playing with is turned on and things along those lines. Yeah, so that brings me to the thought that you're probably looking at the wrong people in the wrong places. Yeah, if if this is such like almost a mild kink, uh, that if if people are calling you a weirdo for this, I can only suspect that you're looking in the vanilla world. Yeah. So if you find yourself trying to do these activities with like the girl you're meeting at Starbucks, you're going to have a very different reaction than someone that you're meeting in your local BDSM community. So this kind of goes back to, you know, like dating your kind of people, right? Uh, you're kinky, you know, you're kinky, or I mean, at least you're an exhibitionist, which makes you kinky, Right. It doesn't really make any sense for you to be going around and chasing people who aren't going to be into the same things as you. Like the fact of the matter is, if you're dealing with kinky people, probably pretty much anybody you're going to be dealing with is going to be at least okay with this type of stuff. You really should look there. And that's where you really need to get out and you need to, you know, find some, maybe get on FetLife, find some groups that are in your area, go out, meet people, right? And Date your kind of people. And as far as being an expeditionist, as fun as it is in vanilla society, there are some precautions and concerns you want to have. Um, being uh, caught out in public, fucking somebody. The idea might seem hot, but... It could get you into a lot of trouble. There's a whole risk versus reward factor that you have to take into account, especially in this day and age where that kind of thing can land you on a sex offender registry and pretty much screw up your whole life. Yeah. And once you're on there, it's not, oh, you're a sex offender because you were tying up a consensual girl on a tree and fucking her. It's you're a sex offender. And that's something that can label you for the rest of your life in a negative way. So um, being intelligent about it. So there's kind of two ways of doing that. First off, if you're getting involved in your community and uh, doing stuff, you have that ability to be in public, especially if part of your whole expeditionism thing is being watched. You have that opportunity of being watched because you're out in public and there's people. Go to a scene party, go to a camp event where you can hike through the woods naked and absolutely nothing will happen to you or you can hang somebody up from a tree. Like you have options to do that in a way that is not going to get you in any kind of trouble or there's essentially no risk at all. Yeah. And I was going to say, as far as like a camp event, if you're looking for that, oh my gosh, we could get caught thing, 
go off, you know, the beaten trail and possibly someone might come and, and find you. Um, especially if you're going to be doing things that are very, very blatantly uh, obvious. Yeah, you still could get caught. The difference is the people who who come catch you will probably just sit there and watch and masturbate. So, you know, <laughs> you'll, you'll be in good shape. Yeah, but what I was saying in regards to going to a camp event versus uh, doing it in your local park is if you're doing something that's very blatantly obvious, that if a police officer or, you know, neighborhood watch person came by and saw, uh, there's no denying it, right? So those sort of activities are much better placed at like a camp event. Now, I'm not going to say that you can't do anything in vanilla society. Like you can do a few things without really getting yourself in too much trouble or most likely aren't going to get yourself in trouble. Things like fingering somebody, you know, putting your hand down someone's skirt or up their skirt, uh, doing things in your vehicle in a way that is uh, more clothed, things like that. You still run some risks, but it's about mitigating those risks as far as not getting yourself into too much trouble. I, I think there is too kind of a little bit of an elephant in the room topic on this, which is when you start talking about consent and bringing people into a scene who haven't consented to seeing this, you know, or to being a part, because essentially somebody walks in on you, they have now become a part of your scene, right? Especially if this is somebody who hasn't consented or wouldn't have consented to it, or like kids or something walk up on you. So I think at the end of the day, if you're going to do something not at a venue where it is okay, like a camp or a dungeon or things like that, make sure, you know, that it's not somewhere that somebody's going to walk up on you, both both from the sex offender viewpoint and just from the consensual ethical viewpoint as well. Okay, so our next question is from an anonymous person. Uh, they wish to remain anonymous. They're from New Jersey. They said, I'm in a poly relationship and was told by my secondary partner that she has an STI. I went and got tested and he found out that he had caught it too. Also, there is a chance that he may have passed chlamydia on to his partner because he had unprotected sex after he may have contracted it. What's the best way for him to tell his primary? And his primary is the one that he's concerned that he gave it to. So I'm going to tell a story that I've actually never told publicly before or even really that much privately. So a few years ago, um, we were, Cassie and I were, uh, had somebody we were dating and we had a couple of play partners and we decided to talk to our partner and go get tested. Now, a lot of times, well, let me backtrack for a second here. So we decided to talk to our partner and go get tested. So the thing to this is that Cassie and I were, we're usually pretty on the whole testing safety thing, right? So we had gotten tested six months after our last partner that we had had, and everything that we had done since then had been protected. You know, we, we had people we were playing with, but everything was like fingering with gloves and toys and all that kind of stuff. Um, really like the lowest of the low possible risk you can possibly have while still being sexually active. So we decided to go get tested, not because we, we thought we had anything, but because we had one partner, uh, the one that we were dating, who we wanted to start doing unprotected stuff with. And, and the way that we do that in our primary relationship is everybody goes and get tested first before we start doing unprotected stuff. So uh, we went down to a clinic in Baltimore, which is where we usually go. And this place, uh, and, and some other public clinics as well, if you go with a partner, uh, they'll go in, they'll assign you a number and you can write down the numbers of everybody that you've come in with, which by the way is always hilarious when you go in with more than one person and you write their numbers down. That just blows their minds. But anyways, we tend to go down to this clinic because uh, unlike our, our local clinic, because we live out in a more conservative area, uh, they tend to be very uh, accepting. They're just happy that people are coming in, period. And we don't have to hear lectures on you know, how what we're doing is wrong. So a lot of times we'll go together with the partner, but in this case, we went down separately because schedules just weren't aligning and we all wanted to start fucking around. And so we were trying to get down there as soon as possible. So Cassie and I went separately and our partner went separately to get tested. So 
time came about a week later when our results were back and Cassie and I were going down there. Uh, we went down there together and then our partner was going to go down later in the day and get her results. So Cassie and I go down there and I go in the room and the lady tells me that I have came back positive for gonorrhea in my throat. And I, I, I was just so in disbelief at that point because, as I said, everything that we'd been doing, we'd been doing protected. And I was just in complete and utter shock at this point when she told me this. Like, I actually told her, like, no, like, you tested wrong. Like, I, I don't go back. Uh, you clearly tested somebody else's sample. Yeah, like, in between the time from the last time that we had been tested to that time, we had played with a few people and pretty much the only activities we had done with anybody else had been fingering with gloves and a few scenes with some like using dildos by like putting them in with our hands with gloves on. So like there was no oral sex, there was no sex, there was no nothing. Yeah, so I was I was just completely astounded by this. And still to this day, I'm not 100% sure how it happened. The, 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 the best idea I can come up with is that uh, uh, probably I, I, I fingered somebody and then I put my hand too far up their body somewhere that I later put my mouth because gonorrhea is extremely, uh, extremely contagious, uh, orally. And that's something that. I found something on the web for extremely contagious. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Siri. I, I appreciate that. So it's, I don't even know that just happened. It's, Anyways, so extremely contagious orally, and that's something that Cassie had had gotten on me a few times about was taking my hand a little too far up somebody's body to a place that I might later put my mouth, like taking it, like putting it around their neck or on their breast or something like that. So habits that I've since changed. However, I was so she told me this, and I was in complete nerve shock. I was like, "No, test it again." And she was basically like, "We're we're we're pretty sure. Not only are we pretty sure, but essentially at this point, it would make more sense for you just to get treated than to get tested." So. I had to go out in the lobby and Cassie was sitting there, who was my primary, and I had to tell her that I had just come back positive for gonorrhea, which was really shitty for two reasons. First off. Well, first off, I had already gotten my results and I was clear. So just having to tell me that you came up with something and I was clear automatically probably had you a bit anxious and kind of, you know, not happy. But I was particularly not so happy because, well, I had to get shot in the ass. Like I had to get, you know, like a freaking needle in the butt of antibiotics. And the reason why that was is because in between the times of going and getting checked and getting our results, because we had really no concern at that point that there was any issue Uh, we had been engaging in sexual activities and doing oral, things like that. And actually the morning of going, uh, Rigel had eaten my pussy, like only a couple hours before going to get the results to his STI checks. So um, I was was a little pissed. (laughs) Well, yeah. So, well, and the other thing was too, it's it's just such a, it's such a, oddball way that I must have picked it up, right? That it, it, it doesn't even sound believable, which I recognize. So it was going and, and, and telling her was, was stressful, but I went out in the room. I think it was a little easier for me at the time because I was just still in such an utter state of shock over it that I think it actually made it a little easier to tell you than it would have been otherwise. And, you know, and, and quite honestly, to this day, I, I still say all the time that I'm, I'm really pissed off that the one time I got an STI, like, I, I didn't even get to eat pussy to get it. <laughs> like, I feel like I got gypped. But anyways, so so I told Cassie. Cassie had to go and get a shot in her ass, which she was absolutely thrilled about. And I had to get she antibiotics. Hurt. Yeah. And then I didn't get the shot because I'm allergic to penicillin. So I got antibiotics. And then uh, we went out in the car, and I had to call our partner and tell her that I had come up positive for gonorrhea which was an incredibly difficult call to make, right? Uh, So I actually understand pretty much exactly where you're coming from. Uh, And 
you know, you ask, what is the best way to tell your primary? And the answer is that there is not a good way to tell her. There's no way that you're going to be able to tell your primary that's going to lessen the blow of telling her that you have picked up an STI from your secondary, right? Uh, you just got to bite the bullet and tell her and anybody else that you, quite frankly, have exposed any kind of risk. Uh, and, and, you know, exactly who that is is going to be determined on the last time you got tested and and your sexual activity with other people and things along those lines. But you, you don't have an option. I mean, you got to tell them and there's no easy way to do it. And you just got to bite the bullet and tell her and tell her immediately so that she can get treated. Yeah, it's, it's the ethical thing to do. And, uh, you know, regardless of what, you know, if she has to be treated or not be treated, um, there's probably going to be some unhappiness there. There's probably going to be a pissed off phase. And, and the best thing that you can do as far as uh, at that moment of telling her is allowing her the ability to be angry about it. Like, I think that's really important that in this situation, like, don't get into a huge argument over this, that, and the other. But if she's pissed, just let her be a little pissed because this is one of those situations that kind of suck. So call her up, tell her there's no magic words. Well, she's your primary, so probably go meet her personally and tell her. Um, the reason I'd called that partner was because we hadn't planned on seeing her that day. So I figured I should just tell her so she could get treated. Um, but th there's no magic words. Just do it get it over with, be prepared for her to be angry and, and apologize. Right. But by apologize, I don't just mean saying you're sorry. Yeah. We actually did a, uh, episode with Charlie Glickman and it was about consent accidents versus, uh, breaking someone's consent. And this isn't the same sort of thing, but there was a, a portion in that episode that really kind of sticks to this kind of example, which is, there's a difference between saying, oh, I'm sorry, and really apologizing. And, and what that is, is really working towards correcting it. Um, what people really want is some sort of, uh, for, for you to show that you're, you've learned your lesson. So something that you might offer is a plan going forward on how to deal with these sort of situations as far as prevention, like getting partners checked or using certain protection, having those kind of conversations and putting her in a position to know that in the future, you're going to be more cautious. Like that's really what an apology really is. Yeah. And I will say it's probably not a conversation you want to have at the same moment that you tell her that you know, that you, you have gonorrhea and she needs to go get, or chlamydia, sorry, in your case, and she needs to go get treated. But, you know, do be prepared to have that conversation and be prepared for there to be somewhat, uh, probably of a renegotiation, uh, you know, around the safety precautions and things like that that are going on in your relationship. So, dude, it sucks. I've been there. Get it over with. I don't have anything better to tell you. All right. So with that, I think we're going to move on. Yeah. So our next question is from another anonymous person. And this is uh, from somebody who's 31 and lives in D.C. How do you recommend balancing your own needs in finding partners when your primary doesn't like the person or persons that you are dating? So first off, if this is a reoccurring problem, if this is something that's happening over and over again, your partner always has issues with any new incoming partners or any partners you have, I think you might want to really consider what's going on with your partner. Um, maybe, especially if this is something that you guys are just starting to do, maybe poly isn't something that's actually working for them. Maybe they're not actually poly if it's something that you were just tinkering with. Um, maybe the style of poly that you guys are doing isn't working for them. There could be a lot of things going on there, but if it's a consistent thing that keeps happening over and over again, I think that's some... Um, uh, evaluation of what's going on. There might be something more there than there just being differences in your partners and them not liking your partners. Yeah. I mean, or they, they may just, you know, especially if it's a new thing, they may just have not developed the skill set yet to deal with jealousy. But I, I do agree with you. I think if, if your partner is continuously has problems with every single partner that you're dating, I think it's a serious warning sign either of, of, needing to evaluate these types of relationships and poly and how things are being handled with your partner or potentially of the type of people that you're dating. And I, I think maybe we'll talk about that, that more in a second. Um, he, you know, here's the thing. So 
I read something recently, uh, and it was written from the point of view of of the partner who who didn't like her partner's metamor. And for anybody who's not familiar with the term a metamor in poly is your partner's other partner, right? It's it's somebody your partner is dating that you're not intimately involved with yourself. That's your metamor. And what this this person was saying was how she looks at her partner and she sees this this other person that he's dating and you know she wonders to herself how how am i in love with somebody who's able to love this type of person right so she's she's kind of looking at it from the point of view of that partner and the thing about polly is that it gives us the opportunity to to date different types of people to get different types of need fulfilled and to express different parts of ourselves that we don't always get to express in our our main relationship. And I think that that goes doubly when you're dating outside of outside of a group, right? So when you're in a situation like we are where there is a primary group, one of the, the more difficult things about that is that people who were dating as a group have to kind of mesh in with everybody in the group. They have to get along with everybody, uh, which is one of the things that makes it more difficult as you add more partners because every partner you add, they then have to, you know, an incoming partner then has to match match with everybody else, at least to a certain extent. But especially in a situation where you're dating in, in a more open format, right? You have the opportunity to date people who are very, very different from your partner and, and they may not get along. And I think that's okay to a certain extent. Yeah, I've actually had, in my experience with doing relationship coaching, with uh, poly folks that there tends to be two big things with that. There's that one aspect of uh, how could you like somebody like this and like me and feeling kind of awkward about it because it just seems like a weird uh, a th- thing. Like how, how could you care about this person and care about me? And then there's also sometimes when a partner sees very very similar things between them and the other partner, but it tends to highlight the bad things about themselves. So it can generate a lot of feelings about, well, where does this make me stand? And why am I your partner if this other person is your partner? Those sort of things. So it it sometimes can just kind of bring up some insecurities on the other partner's end. The thing about the way you're dating is your partners don't have to like each other. But at the same time, you also don't want them at each other's throats. That's not going to be a healthy thing. Yeah. So first of all, people need to act like adults and be civil with each other. And on your part, making sure that you're not feeding into the dislike of the other partner for either partner, not creating drama, doing things like running back to one partner and telling them all the bad things about the other one or vice versa. If you're having a bad day with the other partner, going back to the other one, that can cause those partners to not even know each other, but hate each other simply because you're giving them the negative stuff about the other partner. And that's all they ever hear. So that's called triangulating. And it's a particularly bad idea in any kind of relationship, but especially, uh, especially in poly or family situations, it becomes a problem when you're talking to one partner about the other partner. I know you don't always agree with me on that. I think that that situation is a little bit more specific in closed groups than outer groups with people who aren't dealing with each other at all. I think it can become more of a problem in in outer groups. But I don't think that's triangulation. I, I think there's, triangulation is defined very specifically with getting the other person involved. That person isn't getting involved. They're just hearing. That's why I was saying, I, I don't mean, really you're still you're still getting them involved to a certain extent, but I guess the definition of it really isn't the point. The point is it's a bad idea to be going back and telling the one partner's not interacting bad stuff about the other one. You're almost guaranteed to create problems in that way. Yeah. So it was the, the face was because I wasn't necessarily agreeing with the, the definition of saying triangulation. I think the, the problem is, is that in any situation, if you have a coworker, and they're not even somebody that is romantically invested in you. And you go to that person and continuously tell them bad things about your spouse. How does your coworker view your spouse as this horrible, bad person? So um, it really doesn't have to be any kind of romantic relationship. It's any relationship where you're going to someone and and bringing negative all the time. Um, But particular people, particularly when people care about you, and have romantic feelings, they're going to be even more prone to disliking someone who hurts you. 
So I think that's a definite possibility. I mean, I think going from generalized problems to talking about resolving this, I think the main thing is you need to sit down and find out why your partner doesn't like your partner. And that is probably going to involve either some, that's probably going to involve some very serious self-reflection on your, on your primary partner's part, right? Because you can't read their mind and, uh, they're going to be the only ones who are able to tell you really what the problems are. And they may be very legitimate. They may be very legitimate issues. Yeah, it might be a valid thing. And if it is a valid thing, because sometimes, especially if it's a new partner and we're in that NRE stage and we are completely blinded to what's going on around us, um, our primary partner might pick up on something that we're not. So it could be a very valid thing. So I think it's a good idea, regardless of if it is a valid thing or isn't a valid thing, at least giving your partner the opportunity to tell you what their problem is. I think that's the only way you can really figure out what your next steps are from there. Uh, If it's, you know, if they have a a very real concern uh, about maybe something that's affecting them, maybe you can address that specifically. If for whatever reason, they think this person's a very bad match for you. And maybe you go get some independent feedback from that on some of your other friends and stuff like that. And, and maybe decide whether or not to take heed of that. You know, if it's something that maybe poly or the former poly just isn't working for them, you can sit down and hammer out something that's going to work. Um, but until you talk to your partner and find out the why of what's going on, you're not going to know how to move forward. All right. This one is from Evan. I can't seem to find a legit lifestyle femdom. I've been scammed or almost scammed on collar space. Learned my lesson, hopefully. At fetish events, I'm not sure how to identify who is a dominant and who is a submissive woman, let alone how to approach a femdom when I met her. I I feel like there's, and the more I look at this question, the more I just feel like there's so much to unpack in this in these couple of sentences here, first off, what is a legit lifestyle femdom? Yeah. I mean, what do you make somebody a legitimate femdom? Because that may be one of those situations where you have a fantasy in your head of what a lifestyle femdom is supposed to look like, and that may not be like a real thing. Yeah. Um, so for this whole question, I actually did a Kinkley article. Um, not too long ago. And one of the sections in that Kinkley article, because it's talking about how to how to date a dominant woman if you're a submissive man. That's what the whole article is about. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, but in that article, one of the things that I talk about is this idea of what a real femdom or real female dominant looks like. Or real like. dominant. Yeah. Or even a real dominant if you're if you're taking it outside of the female aspect. Um, here's the thing. We're people. Uh, what you might view from something that you saw on like CSI or a, uh, porn porn is not typically what's really based in reality. Like dominant people have jobs, they have kids, they have responsibilities. So if you're looking for something that is this picture perfect, uh, idea that you'd see in a movie, you're probably you probably need to find somebody you're just going to see on the weekends and do kink stuff with. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the best way I can say it. I mean, we we've spent a reasonable amount of time around the power exchange community. I can tell you even in the power exchange community like the serious hardcore master slave community, people have lives, man. Nobody's life runs like this always perfect power exchange, you know, like what you could get if you just went out and spent a weekend being somebody's slave life doesn't function like that. You can't do it. So I think maybe, maybe the first thing that you got to consider is, uh, is what you're looking for even real realistic. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the first part about this legit lifestyle femdom thing. Collar space. Uh Uh-huh. Um, Collar space uh, is a bad website to begin with. Um, not to pick at you. Um, but it is uh, not particularly very good. It's known for its scammers and uh, pay-for-play type of people. When you're saying lifestyle, I'm assuming you're not looking for a pro-dom type situation. 
Yeah. And if you're not looking for a pro-dom situation, what I suggest is finding sites that are more centered around relationships and are going to work for what you're looking for. And really, honestly, the best way is not to do online dating, but to actually get out and meet people. Um, Online dating can be helpful, but knowing that if you're really looking for like a power exchange type relationship, the best thing, especially if you have a local BDSM community, would be to get out into the community. Getting on me on that. uh, So we've dealt with the legit lifestyle femdom thing. We've dealt with the collar space thing. At fetish events, you're not sure how to identify who is dominant and who is a submissive woman, let alone how to approach a femdom when I meet her. Well, first, let's talk about how to identify who's who, right? I'd say as a general rule, um, there's no one thing that you're going to be able to look at and be like, you know, that's a dominant, unless you're like one of the few places in the the country that people still use like hanky codes or something like that. Uh, You know, you're going to try and put it together from several things. Like, okay, you see this girl, okay? Is she dressed in in what most people would consider like a more dominant way, like maybe like military clothes or boots or something like that? Is she bleeding somebody around on a leash? Do you see her topping people? Like you can kind of take all these factors into consideration and come up with a, with a pretty good idea. But there's, I think there's two main issues with that. Number one, doesn't necessarily mean they are dominant. Uh, they could be a switch. They could uh, just be a dominant to a specific type of gender. Um, if you see them leading a girl around, they might not be interested in doming men. Um, it's it's a lot of assumption. I think the second problem. Uh, I think the second problem is that, as a general rule, play spaces are a bad place to try to meet people. Yeah, it's it's there's a lot of loud music, there's play going on. People tend to have scenes planned for, you know, days before a play party. Like a lot of people have a schedule or dance card uh with things that they're doing and aren't really at a play party to mingle and get to know people. Uh doesn't mean it doesn't ever happen, but typically speaking, when someone's going to a play party, they usually have plans. And uh, especially if you're somebody who they've never talked to or never had interaction with, that's going to make pickup play even more difficult. Like if you know someone and you've had some conversation before, it's going to be a lot easier to just walk up and be like, oh, hey, we're both here. I want to play. But if you've had really no interaction with this person before, pickup play is not the easiest thing. I'd say especially with female bombs because they tend to be in relatively high demand. Yeah. And there are usually is, um, in most areas, things that are designed specifically for femdoms. Like there's femdom meetups, uh, munches, things like that. Around here we have fist. And, uh, we also have like the, uh, DC dominatrix munch and stuff like that. So there, there, there is things that are designed for female doms. And if there is nothing in your area that is femdom, female dominant specific, you know, depending on where you're at, still you can probably around your area find something that's at least power exchange specific, whether it's like a mass group, master and slaves together, or you have a local educational group that has a power exchange focused special interest group, or there's a power exchange meetup in your area. You can at least get out to those. And, and there will be some females out there who are interested in that you know, it's just not as, it's not as specific, but it will be a good place for you to go. Now, that being said, something I want to stick out there, as someone who is a female dominant, I don't necessarily call myself a femdom. So excluding other types of female dominance based on the idea of just femdom might also be sort of like making that pool smaller simply because you're using that terminology. So by getting out, going to kink events, talk to other females that are dominant, that sort of thing. Um, And they might still be what you're looking for just under a different label. So go to the show notes. Uh, My Kinkly article actually goes into a lot of stuff with uh, dating dominant women. I think it'll be very helpful to you. You can go to a touch of flavor 
slash zero one two. Yeah, a touch of flavor.com forward slash zero one two. Look at the show notes and you'll find the Kinkley article in there. All right. Our last question for the day is from Tessa. Tessa is from North Carolina and she's 36 years old. Why is it that whenever I explain to people that I'm poly, the assumption is that I'm interested in getting together with that person? They think my discussion about being poly is an invitation way of hit- or a way of hitting on them. Vanillas. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, um, there, there isn't a ton you can do. People are going to make their assumptions, which suck, but people suck, and that kind of is how it goes. Yeah, I, I think this is the same mindset that you get where if you're like us, where you're poly and you have any children, you automatically get the question of, well, what are you doing around the kids, right? Which is never a question they'd ask a monogamous person who's dating. But apparently when you become poly or kinky or any kind of a pervert, you just become depraved and lose all your self-control and start doing shit around your kids that you shouldn't do. And it's the same way, I think, with when you start talking about poly, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're bisexual, anything like that, right? You're, you're automatically just like a slut and you're available and open to anybody who, I feel like you'd be better talking about this than me. Yeah. I mean, as, as, as a bisexual poly woman, I have experiences all the time where particularly cisgender men will be like, oh, so you'll fuck me, right? Like there's this assumption that because I am bisexual. I'm poly. I am sex positive. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm a slut. I'm happy about that. But that doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to fuck you. Um, but there's a lot of assumption around the fact that because I am these things, that I don't have any sort of uh, standards. Like, standards. Yeah. Like I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna fuck anything that moves because obviously that's what I do. And unfortunately. There isn't a whole lot that you can do as far as like getting people not to have that particular mindset, especially when they're first finding out. Yeah. The only thing that I've found to be really helpful, and it's not something that you have a lot of control over, is that generally the people who uh, tend to get over those ideas in my life tend to be the people who have to interact with me as a regular person. So I think it's kind of like how the gay movement uh, you know, the gay rights movement has jumped forward over the last several years. You have all these people who, you know, have gay neighbors or gay family members or uh, gay coworkers. And all of a sudden these people go from being like the other to having a face and they're people. And you can, can treat them as people and think of them as people instead of a, a group of stereotypes. And in my life, the only thing that's really helped that has been, uh, for the people that that I'm dealing with there to get to know me or my family as people. Yeah, and I think it also comes down to like selection of who you tell. Obviously, I'm not telling anybody to ever put themselves, you know, in the closet or not to talk about uh, their relationships because I think it is very empowering to be able to do so. But occasionally, if it is somebody who really has no impact on your life, is not someone that you are going to have any interaction with. Maybe get let them get to know you a little first. Yeah, let, let them have some time getting to know you uh, before dropping, you know, the um, poly bomb because they don't have any sort of basis on of who you are to try not to make those assumptions. And if they do make those assumptions, what then? Because you deal with this a lot more than I do as far as it affecting you where people suddenly think that you're you're available. I think that's a lot more of a problem for women than it is for men. Like as a man, like I tend it tends to put off the vanilla women when they find out that my partners are okay with with me doing stuff with other people. So I think that's actually something that you as a woman deal with a lot more than I deal with as a man. I mean, really it comes down to just I mean, my tactic anyways is two things. One, I try to explain that my relationship is a relationship. It's not just, oh, I'm just fucking people, but actually breaking down poly and explaining that it's it's a relationship and that there are uh, real things with poly. Like uh, one of the things that you say very often is sex is easy, right? Like going out and fucking people or finding someone to fuck is is very, very simple. But actually having relationships is work. And 
it might actually bore the person a little bit. I know when I've had conversations with people, they're like, oh, that's not nearly as fun as I thought it was going to be. Um, but it gives them an idea of that it's it's not just a relationship that's grounded in in fucking anybody. It's, it's actually about a lot of um, compromise and a lot of work. But I think that that helps people uh, see it as more of a real relationship. Um, Because I know when I tell people that you have, um, talking about Rigel, has myself and our partner, like the first thing they're like is, oh my gosh, he's getting so much pussy. Like, that's awesome. And I'm like, actually, he's got two women getting on him about laundry. Um, (laughs) And that sort of shuts that down, at least from the guys that I talk to. Um, But if, uh, if it persists and it doesn't go away with trying to explain relationships, that sort of thing... Sometimes you just have to kind of be a jerk. Um, Sometimes you have to be mean. Uh, There's been plenty of situations where I've had people, especially after I've tried to explain it to them, that still go with the assumption that they're going to be able to pursue me. And if they keep pushing, because I'm a slut, I'll have sex with them uh, and won't bug off. That I have to get kind of a little nasty with. And I'll say things like, I'm bisexual, I'm kinky, I'm a slut, and I'm still not going to fuck you get over it. And that's really what I have to do to kind of, you know, sometimes you have to do those kind of things. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask. Or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF-1. That mosquito's on the wall right there. Where? Right there. Can you smack it? <sighs> yeah, because he's been eating me a fucking lie. That's all my blood. <laughs> That's what that is. That is all my blood that he's been <laughs> sucking out of my body. All right. Thank you for avenging me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. (laughs) Why are you laughing? There's another one. Oh my fucking God.